Greetings, everyone, to uh, the Blaney's podcast. We have a very interesting and provocative podcast this time around. We're going to be talking about sexual harassment, and we'll be speaking to my partner, Maria Katsopoulos. Sexual harassment has been on the books in Ontario since 1982, when it was first introduced into the Ontario Human Rights Code. At that point in time, and at today, the definition remains the same, essentially unwanted or unwelcome sexual actions or comments. For the first time, media attention turned on the notion of sexual harassment as a result of the congressional investigation into the appointee to the Supreme Court of the United States, Clarence Thomas. During that investigation, it came to light that allegations and complaints were being made against him by one of the employees who worked with him, a Miss Anita Hill. She became the face of sexual harassment because she alleged and complained that the judge made a number of inappropriate comments to her and made a number of inappropriate and unwelcome uh, gestures towards her. This issue of sexual harassment again went away from the public's attention until recently when the media in Canada and the United States focused on the actions of national broadcast celebrities and international movie and television stars. What has arisen from this new media focus is an examination of what really constitutes the problem of sexual harassment, and that is an abuse of power, whether it is in the mind of the harassed employee or whether it is the intention of the employer The imbalance of power is the notion, is the basis of the notion of what constitutes sexual harassment. The other theme that has emerged as a result of the increasing media focus on this issue is the reluctance of complainants to come forward to make an allegation or a complaint against an individual in the workplace. It is because of this lack of complaints process or the failure to provide safety to the complainant that has prevented a number of cases from going forward. A recent report by Angus Reid has indicated that one million Canadians have experienced sexual harassment. It breaks down as follows. Approximately 43% of that number are women who have been harassed in the workplace and 20 of them have been men who have been so sexually harassed. Now, the Canadian survey indicates that while the number adds up to approximately 1 million, less than 20% of those who have been sexually harassed have actually made formal complaints to bring this behavior to light. Good afternoon, Maria. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Lou. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Maria, we we talk about sexual harassment and we bandy these words around, but from a legal point of view, what does sexual harassment actually mean? Well, harassment itself is defined as engaging in a course of comment or conduct that is known to be unwelcome or reasonably ought to be known to be unwelcome. So then when we look at what sexual harassment is, it's a subset of harassment and it relates to comments or conduct relating to an individual sex, to sex, or in respect of gender-related issues. Now, that's a very specific legal definition, and I appreciate that you as a lawyer, you work with these legal definitions, but let's, let's see if we can't be a little more concrete for our listeners. Can you give me some examples of what would constitute sexual harassment as far as the case law is concerned and as far as your experience is concerned? 
Certainly, there are lots of different types of comments that might be considered sexual harassment. They can relate to an individual's sex, so they can be gender-related comments. You might comment on a woman's ability to do her work, for example. That could be sexual harassment. And then the obvious example is propositioning someone for certain advantage. It can include unwanted touching. It can include sending pornographic images, posting pornographic images, even commenting about sex or gender-related issues around people who may feel uncomfortable by those comments. We usually think about sexual harassment as a woman, and usually a younger woman, being harassed by a manager or, or a, an older man. But that's not necessarily the case as far as the law is concerned. Isn't that correct? That's absolutely right. When we look at the Ontario Human Rights Commission's policy on sexual harassment, they're quick to identify that it's not simply a male-female issue, that it could be females that are involved in sexual harassment. And also, we've got to consider other individuals who are transgendered, transsexual, and how that new addition to the Human Rights Code fits in to the discussion of sexual harassment. Maria, where would we find this protection for the individual who is being harassed in our laws? In Ontario, there are two main sources of legislation. The first is the Occupational Health and Safety Act. That deals with harassment in general and includes uh, complaints with respect to sexual harassment. The second piece of legislation is the Human Rights Code. What do these statutes allow uh, a harassed employee to do? For instance, can they sue for monetary damages? What exactly can they do under these statutes? Well, an individual who has been harassed can bring an application to the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario alleging discrimination and harassment on the basis of sex and claim damages from their employer or from the harasser. How much money are we looking at for those kind of allegations? It depends on the severity of the harassment. I think in general terms, you're looking at damages for injury to feelings, dignity, and self-respect, which may range from $7,500 to $40,000. Okay, so let's look at this from an employer's point of view. In a workplace where an individual employee has been harassed, does the employer face any liability as a result of that? Employers have a duty to investigate complaints of harassment and to ensure the workplace is a safe one for employees. In the absence of policies in place and review of those, those policies, a review of the complaint made, there is definite liability on the employer. So what advice would you give to an employer to ensure that there's minimum amount of liability that flows from these kind of complaints? First and foremost, to have a policy in place that addresses harassment and sexual harassment specifically. Having specific examples of what sexual harassment is, I think, is helpful for employees to know and uh, be trained on what sexual harassment is. Moving forward, if a complaint comes to an employer or to a manager, they've got to take immediate steps to ensure that they review the situation and investigate the matter. So I guess you're looking at the employer along with setting up a policy, setting up some kind of complaint process. It's a good idea to have it in the policy. So not only do you address what sexual harassment is so everyone knows what we're talking about, but you also address what and how you make a complaint. A lot of the media reports have indicated that women are uncomfortable in making this complaint. How important is it to choose the right person 
to be the person involved in doing the intake on the complaint, if you wish, being the mentor to this harassed employee? I think it is critical. Oftentimes in policies, they don't necessarily say that you need to make your complaint to a specific person. They might say you address it with human resources or your manager. But if the employee feels more comfortable speaking to somebody else and that person then becomes aware of the complaint, then they've got an obligation to pursue it further. And I presume you'd want to have somebody who is officially set up as the complaints person, as somebody who is being who is sensitive and who understands the issues and can provide some kind of reassurance to the complainant. I think it's always important to have someone who will listen, who will evaluate, and will move forward in a reasoned way. And I, and I think I would tend to agree with that because what we have read is, is, the, is many women who believe there's a stigma in even making the complaint and coming forward with it. And I think, from at least from the point of view of what we've seen in the media, having an open complaints process where the complainant is not stigmatized, but in fact her comments are, if not welcome, but certainly taken seriously at the initial step, seems to me a very important first step for every employer. And that can occur through a, a good training process for managers. If they know what to look for, how to address a, policy, a complaint, then they can pursue it in a way that will prevent, possibly prevent liability for the employer. Let's talk about this notion of training, because I think that's an, an important and key issue. What kind of training are we talking about? Are we talking about training for all the employees, for the managers? Can you be more specific about that? I think it's critical for employers to teach employees about the policies that they have in place. So employees know their rights, first and foremost. That can take the form of a lunch and learn. It can take any number of forms, depending on the particular workplace. But you want to have some specific examples to employees so they know what their content of their rights are. Then moving forward, you might have specific training in place for managers and people who will be charged with reviewing uh, situations involving things like sexual harassment, harassment more, in, more generally. I presume this complaint process has to be fair and uh, equal to both parties in this process, not only the rights of the complainant, but the rights of the individual against whom the complaint is made. How do we ensure those rights are protected? You can do so in a number of ways. I think it's important for an employer to determine if it's a matter that can be investigated internally by someone at the workplace, or if it's important to then instead refer it out to an individual who is a professional investigator to assess the situation. In doing so, I think it gives uh, importance to the process and provides both parties with assurances that the matter will be treated seri seriously and effectively. When we talk about treating the matter seriously and effectively, what kind of penalties would we, should an employer uh, impose uh, upon this kind of action, sexual harassment? I think it depends on if this is the first instance, if there are other instances, the severity of the contact. I think it's a, con it's a contextual approach that should be taken. So it, it's not necessarily so that an individual who commits a single act of sexual harassment will be fired the next day? Not necessarily the case. Right. I guess you say it, it all depends on the severity of, of that kind of, a, of behavior. Not only of the behavior, but then how long has the employee been employed? Is this a long-service employee? Is this an aberrant behavior? 
Is it something unusual for this particular person? Can it be explained? Is the person uh, apologetic? I think all those factors play in to determining whether you are going to terminate the employee and whether you're going to terminate on the basis of cause or without cause. When there is a complaint process in place at an employer's establishment, does an employee who has been harassed have to go through that process before they can turn to the courts or the tribunal? No, they don't. They can go directly to the Human Rights Tribunal, and there's a direct access model. So you make an application, it's responded to, and within a few months' time, you can have a hearing date. Uh, Most of the time, it's encouraged for individuals to pursue the internal processes. And in fact, on the human rights forms themselves, they ask you if you have. I see. Now, in a criminal court, in order to prove sexual assault, or in the, the, which is sort of the criminal version of sexual harassment, there has to be evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that the act has been committed. What is the onus of proof before the tribunal? An applicant will have to prove that sexual harassment occurred, but the standard is a balance of probability standard. So then how can an applicant prove that sexual harassment did occur? That's a great question because most of the time sexual harassment doesn't occur in broad daylight. It happens behind closed doors. So what tribunals have done is accept that often it's difficult to make a finding and then infer from the context of the evidence at the hearing what was more likely than not to have occurred. So they can rely on circumstantial evidence in that respect. And is it a defense for an employer or an employee who has been accused of harassment to say, I didn't mean it to be that way. She must have misunderstood what I did. Is that a defense? The thought process or intention of the alleged harasser does not figure into this at all. In the human rights world, it's generally been acknowledged that it's the feelings of the individual who alleges the discrimination or the harassment that are of paramount importance. Now, you know we're at a time when this podcast is being taped a little before Christmas and the holiday seasons, and it's the time that employers have their employees gather together for a dinner or a lunch, and oftentimes alcohol is served. Sometimes there's even dancing. What advice would you give to employers at this time of the season to address and deal with the issue of sexual harassment at these parties? That's a great question and, and of course, very timely. I think one thing that employers should do is remind employees of their obligations to each other and that it's a work-sanctioned event. Employers ultimately can be responsible for what occurs at a holiday party, so it's in their best interest to ensure message gets out to employees about what appropriate behavior is and what is expected. Should an employer's policy regulate the activities of employees outside of the workplace? For the most part, I would think that most policies wouldn't address out-of-work conduct unless the character of the employment is such that it might be required. In certain instances, you might have trustworthiness components to the employment relationship that might require an employer to consider out-of-work conduct at work. If, for an example, a manager in a workplace takes out a subordinate employee out for dinner or for drinks and makes some remark or suggestion or does something that is inappropriate, is that considered sexual harassment as well? For the most part, yes, I think it would be particularly because you've got a power dynamic there with a manager and a subordinate. 
So really the, the workplace extends beyond the actual physical environment when you actually have two employees going out together. Yes, the situation where you've got a manager and an employee who is a subordinate outside the workplace beyond work regular work hours can definitely result in a sexual harassment claim. Now, Maria, if an individual employer or a company wishes to obtain these uh, policies, processes, training, and other tools to control and regulate sexual harassment in the workplace, can they come to you to uh, assist them in um, drafting these policies and providing this kind of guidance? I'd be happy to help. Absolutely. And I presume you've done this several times before. Once or twice? Absolutely. So where can they reach you? Can you give us your contact information? My phone number is 416-593-2987, or you can find me on Blaney.com. And your email? mkutsopoulos at Blaney.com. Thank you, Maria. Next on our Blaney's Brief, we have Talia Gordner speaking to us on the implications of putting pictures and videos on your Facebook if and when you get involved in a lawsuit. Oftentimes, what you put on your Facebook page will become available to the lawyers on the other side of a lawsuit, and what you say and do and show on Facebook can come back to bite you. So the case of Conrad versus Caverly involves a personal injury matter uh, where a plaintiff is involved in a motor vehicle accident. Now, in addition to her physical injuries in the complaint, she also complains of an inability to participate in recreational and social activities and problems with concentration and focus that limit the time she's able to spend using websites like Facebook. So the defendant brings a motion for production of the completed printed copy of the plaintiff's Facebook profile that's restricted by privacy settings and a printed copy of her Facebook usage history indicating login and logout information. Now the court really had no issue ordering production of the Facebook usage history because she brought the issue of how much she uses Facebook as a part of her claim. Now, with respect to the production of her private profile, the plaintiff obviously opposed this motion, and the court spent some time looking at Ontario case law, despite it being a Nova Scotia case, and deciding what the appropriate test is in determining whether or not the matter contained in her private Facebook profile would be relevant. So Justice McDougall, who's the judge in this case, starts looking at this pre-2010 case law to start, and pretty much comes to the conclusion that Yes, the court will infer the likely existence of photographs on a plaintiff's private profile that would be relevant and involve uh, the plaintiff participating in social activities or recreational activities, really just based on the fact that Facebook is a social networking site. However, what ended up being the deciding factor was what was on the public profile of the plaintiff. And from that, the court would infer what would likely be in the private site and determine based on that whether or not the private site should be produced. When the 2010 amendments to the Rules of Civil Procedure come out and the test for relevance is changed to relevant to any matter and issue in the action, you'd think that it would give the court the opportunity to maybe reassess what I like to call the public profile relevancy test. And what we see is instead the court proceeds with this public profile relevancy test where in determining whether or not the plaintiff's private profile is relevant to the action, They're looking at what's in the public profile and inferring what would be in the private based on that. Now, I should mention that in a lot of these cases, the court will order that the plaintiff be cross-examined or re-cross-examined on their affidavit of documents to ensure they've complied with their obligations in relation to that 
production thereof, but they're not ordering production of the private profile without something being relevant in the public one. So, and going back to the case of Conrad, it takes an interesting turn because the defendant submitted black and white thumbnails of the photographs available in the plaintiff's profile, and the court essentially said, I can't really tell what these are, and I, I don't know what's happening in them, so I'm not going to order production of the private profile based on these photographs, but the defendant's welcome to come back and bring a further motion with better evidence to support a production order. So I want to leave you with two questions uh, on whether or not really the public profile relevancy test is really the best test based on the use and the purpose of a social networking site like Facebook. The first is, is assessing relevancy based on the privacy settings of a particular user uh, the appropriate test for determining whether or not Facebook profile information would be relevant to a personal injury action. Now, you have to keep in mind that privacy settings are set by the user, not by Facebook. So there's really nothing to stop someone who has relevant photographs or posts on their private profile or on their public profile from adjusting the privacy settings when they decide to file a personal injury claim, which in turn just makes it difficult, if not impossible, for the defense counsel or the defendant to access that information. The other issue I thought was of particular interest was that claims for physical injuries require the plaintiff to produce all of their medical records, no matter how personal or how embarrassing, because they've put their physical health in issue. Now, in a lot of these personal injury claims, there are claims for loss of enjoyment of life or an inability or a reduction in an ability to participate in social and recreational activities. Now, a social networking site like Facebook, where people are posting what events they're attending and the activities they participated in and sending messages about social activities or taking photographs of them, you would think that despite the private nature of these photographs and and information, that it would also be considered relevant based on what the plaintiff has put in issue in their claim. However, it appears at this point that's not really the case. So before you decide whether or not you think this is the appropriate test, I think the best thing to do is go home, log out of your Facebook, and make sure you're logged out. Go into Google and search your name and search Facebook and click on the link and see what's available on your public profile and decide whether or not you think it's really indicative of what's in your private profile.